Uh, the reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and to be found on page 1192 in the Bibles. 1 Timothy 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how could he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must be, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great insurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God whose word is living and true. We pray that your spirit would be, would be with us, would be amongst us, would act in us now that by your Spirit you would apply that living word to our hearts, to our souls, and to our minds. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Imagine that you are a leader in a small new church family. Imagine that you spend three years with them, and in that time, by God's grace, the church grows and the church becomes established. Imagine that you then leave and you hand over the reins to your protege. 
Some years later, that church and that pastor are still very much on your heart. One day you sit down to write them a letter. And in that letter, you want to express how you feel. You want to express what your concerns are. You want to express, or you want to talk about the health and the well-being of that church that you still think about so much. That letter is the one that Paul wrote to Timothy about the church at Ephesus, which Ted read from for us earlier. Paul wants Timothy to understand that he is concerned, he's preoccupied, he's consumed even with three things. He's firstly consumed with Christ. He talks about Christ, our hope, right from the start in chapter 1, verse 1. He talks about Christ, his Lord, about the grace of his Lord. He talks about his limitless patience, about the glorious gospel. And he praises Christ as being the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. He wants to remind Timothy that Christ is central. He's also consumed with the truth, with the fact that there is one truth which frees us, with one sound doctrine, one true gospel, one good teaching, one true faith. He uses all those phrases. There is one truth to be taught, to be guarded, and to be defended. So he wants to remind Timothy that Christ and the truth of the gospel are central. And thirdly, he's consumed with the church with that church family. He's consumed with how they and with how we should worship. He's consumed with how we should pray, how we should respect one another, how we should care for one another, how we should love one another, with how he puts it, he says, how we should be rich in good deeds toward one another. So Paul wants to remind Timothy in his letter that Christ and the truth of the gospel are central and critical in the health of the local church, in the health of the church at Ephesus, and in the health of the church in Basingstoke. So when he sits down, and he picks up his pen, and he writes to Timothy, he's determined to ensure that Timothy, as a leader, gets it. That their leaders lead the church in Ephesus, and that our leaders lead us to the truth of the gospel in Christ, that they keep us there, and that they protect us, and they protect us from false teachers. And so he turns his mind to those leaders in that church, which brings us to chapter 3 in the passage today. Now you may be thinking, this is all very interesting, but surely it has nothing to do with me. I'm don't have any aspirations to be a church leader. Surely this is just something with people who desire to be or, or who are deacons and elders and overseers and so on. Now that's a fair question and there's a number of good answers to that question. Perhaps the answer is that Clive Hawkins has a wicked sense of humor and he thought it would be funny to assign someone the task of speaking about being a minister 24 hours before he takes up that very job to then preach from his wealth of experience on that role. And Clive then enjoyed sticking to his guns when the newbie tried to dodge the bullet. I leave it to you to decide if that's being wicked or being wise. I really don't know. Perhaps the answer is that Clive is due to retire at some other undisclosed date, rapidly approaching. 
And he wants you and the wardens and the PCC to consider what you should be looking for in his replacement. That would be a good reason. That would be wise. Like John Stott said, the health of a church depends very largely on the quality, the faithfulness, and the teaching of its ordained ministers. And we all want St. Mary's to be a healthy church. Perhaps the answer is that you or your spouse or your child or your grandchild or your friend are or should be thinking about full-time ministry, in which case this would be good for you to hear. Now, there are many other good reasons why we all need to look at this passage and to consider this topic, and as I hope you'll see at the end, it would be a big mistake to think that chapter 3 is only about overseers and deacons, because it's not. Now, there is one thing that we will definitely all agree on. Job titles in the church are the most confusing thing you have ever come across in your entire life. What is an overseer? What's a deacon? What is an elder? What's a minister? A pastor? What is a reverend? A vicar? A bishop? A warden? An archdeacon? An archwarden? Etc., etc., etc. And I'll stop there. You'll be relieved to know that we are not going to excruciatingly examine every job title in the universe of the church today, That's that, because that's not what this passage is about. What Paul actually does here is he gives us the right lens through which to consider different roles in the church, through which to consider candidates for those roles in the church. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear at all that it raises three topics which we will consider. And the first one is the foundation of church leadership. The foundation of church leadership. So what is the foundation? What's the basis? What's the touchstone of church leadership? What do you look for as the primary characteristic to determine the suitability of a church leader? What is it? Now, Paul doesn't actually say it. He doesn't tell us. But he does assume it. It is in the background of his entire letter. Please keep your place in Timothy and turn to Mark chapter 10 page 1015. Mark chapter 10, page 1015. The context here is that two of the apostles, James and John, in their ambition are vying to occupy the seats of power alongside Christ in what they mistakenly think will be a physical kingdom on earth that he is going to inaugurate at that time. And the other ten apostles find out. They're jealous, they are ticked off, and they start verbally pounding on James and John. And this is what happens. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, you know that in the secular world, it's all about authority and it's about power. And then he says, not so with you. That is not how it should be in the church. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus describes his mission by referencing his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. That's from Daniel chapter 7. Now that title isn't just meant to convey a sense of humanity about him, although it does that. It is far, far more than that. The Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is someone who comes, as Daniel says, in godly authority and glory and terrifying sovereign power. That is the Son of Man. And Jesus, that all-powerful Son of Man, says he came not to be served, literally not to be deaconed to, but to serve, literally to deacon. He uses a variant of the same word that is used to denote the role and the responsibilities of a deacon by Paul in 1 Timothy. Now, he's not talking about the official role of being a deacon. That's not what he's saying, as Paul does. But he is saying that he came to serve. He came, in fact, to give the ultimate service, that of his life as a ransom to rescue many from slavery to sin. And he tells them, you and as leaders are therefore also to serve. You are also to deacon, as it were. So in one sense, all church leaders, in fact, all of us as believers are to be deacons. We are all to serve. Now, while Paul doesn't specifically mention this in the passage, as I said, it's important that we highlight it because that is the backdrop to the letter. So all believers, most especially all church leaders, are to be sacrificially Christ-like in our servant-heartedness. And that's the foundation of church leadership. It's Christ, especially in his servant-heartedness. So turning back to 1 Timothy, let's move on to the next topic. And that topic is the character of church leaders, the character of church leaders. Now, as I said before, I'm going to avoid the minefield of titles in the church, especially in our denomination, for further information, please reference Clive Hawkins after the service. He will be very glad to explain all those titles to you. But I must at least touch on overseer and deacon, because that's what the passage is about, right? It's about those two roles. That's the focus of the passage. Overseer is largely just a synonym for what Scripture elsewhere calls elders or presbyters. They essentially describe the same role. So, for example, if you look at Paul's letter to Titus, just flip forward a few pages, past 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and then you come to Titus, Titus chapter 1. And Titus is in a similar role to Timothy, but he's at a church in Crete. And Paul says this to Titus, verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every church as I directed you. Then in verse 7, he switches to calling them overseers. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's word, work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, and so on. So Paul uses the titles interchangeably. That's one example there. But they reference the same role. So why have two titles? Why two titles? Well, elder was Jewish in origin. Overseer is Greek in origin. Very helpful in a mixed church. Elder more describes what they are. Overseer more describes what they do. Again, helpful. So those are some of the reasons, perhaps, for the two titles. 
Now, if you use an older translation like the King James, then you may notice that overseer was translated as bishop. Now, there are good historical reasons for that having happened, which we won't go into now. But it was also somewhat unhelpful. It was what John Stott called, in his polite way, an anachronism. Stott says that because the title and the role of bishop only emerged in the second century, not in the New Testament. So overseer is a far more accurate description of the role. Now overseers or elders were the first leaders that were appointed in any new church. So for example in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey, they're establishing churches, and it says in Acts 14 they appointed elders in every church. That's what they did. So that's the standard New Testament model for oversight in the church. A number of elders was appointed in each church and they were given responsibility for the pastoral care of the church. So an overseer or an elder is someone who's primarily, but not exclusively, responsible for the pastoral care and spiritual well-being of the church. I say not exclusively because pastoral care is something to be provided by the whole church family in many ways. And that's very clear in Ephesians chapter 4. But it's the elders or the overseers who are primarily responsible. The closest equivalent in an Anglican context like ours would be Clive or would be Rob. That's their responsibility. In other denominations, the person might be called a pastor or a minister or a senior minister. We also see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that this is a role reserved in Scripture for men. And that's God's good design for men and for women for very good reasons. But that's a topic for another day. Deacons. To deacon, as I mentioned, means to serve. But it went beyond being what we are called to do, all called to do in serving, and it became an official title and role in the church. A deacon is primarily, but not exclusively, responsible for the physical well-being and the practical needs of the church family. The closest equivalent in our context would be the PCC. Deacons, though, also seem to have been pastoral co-workers who worked alongside elders or overseers in the church. So, for example, Stephen in Acts chapter 6, although probably appointed as a deacon, was also an evangelist. He was also a preacher. You see that later in Acts. And that's why the title deacon is used in the Anglican world for church ministers during their first year of ministry. That's why they have two ordinations. One as a deacon, and a year later, typically, as a vicar, as an overseer, if you will. So your first ordination as a deacon, you then work alongside somebody of greater experience who is your mentor. And usually a year later, there's then another ordination. Some people choose to remain deacons for indefinitely, for various good reasons. So Caroline is an example in our context. The role of deacon is open in Scripture to both men and to women, to deacons and to deaconesses. But that too is a topic suitable for another day. Let's talk about job descriptions. Imagine you're part of the team asked to consider candidates as replacements for Clive in some time to come. 
What must you look for when you appoint people to that role? What should the job spec contain? Great qualifications? Helpful, but actually not essential. Good looks? Clearly not. I'm talking about me, not Clive, obviously. <laughs> Big brains? Very clearly not. Paul tells us in this passage what should be on that job description. What the first things are that he would look for in an overseer or a deacon. He stipulates those for overseers in verses 3 to 7. Those for deacons in verses 8 to 13. Now when Ted read this earlier, a few things probably stood out for you. One of those things that stood out was that these are characteristics that are very ordinary and what every Christian is called to be, with very few exceptions, just one or two here. But for the most part, they apply to us all. The second thing that probably stood out for you is that almost all of these characteristics, almost all, are applicable to both the overseer and the deacon. They're common to both roles. So these are characteristics that we should all be pursuing in becoming more like Christ and they're also the same for both of these roles with some differences. Now, we don't have the luxury of time to unpack them one by one, so we won't do that. But what we can do is we can collate them into three categories. These are the three headings on your job description that you're formulating. And the three headings are personal integrity, relational integrity, and spiritual maturity. So firstly, personal integrity. Now, personal integrity, one of the areas that he addresses is what we could call self-discipline. So he talks in verse 2 about being temperate, self-controlled, respectable, gentle. And then in verse 8, worthy of respect and sincere and so on. He's talking about self-discipline. He's talking about being able to control your drives and urges. Why? So that leaders lead lovingly, not abusively. That's why. He talks about restraint. as another area. He talks about not being, verse 3, a lover of money, and not being, verse 8, and not, verse 8, indulging in much wine. He's describing enjoying, but not being enslaved by, the good gifts that God has given us to enjoy. After all, how can a leader lead faithfully as an under-shepherd of Christ when he's captive to a different master? So that's personal integrity. It encompasses self-discipline and it encompasses restraint. Let's think about relational integrity. That's what Paul comes to as well. Marriage. Being literally a one-woman man. If married which wasn't a requirement, so Paul was unmarried for at least part of his ministry. But if married, then fidelity in marriage is essential. And also the spouse must have similar personal integrity. Verse 11, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. What he's saying is that faithful ministry for the married person where the two have become one is critically dependent on the personal integrity of that new one. Faithful ministry for the two who've become one is critically dependent on the integrity, the personal integrity of that new one. He then talks about having a healthy home. 
So he talks about if there are children, specifically minors, he's referring to, this is before they become accountable adults, then those children are to be, verse 4, obedient. And they're to be, verse 12, well-managed. He's saying that their children need to be disciplined and they need to be discipled. They need to be disciplined and they need to be discipled. They need to be raised knowing that they are part of a faithful family who seek to follow and obey Christ. And then he talks about outside relationships. Hospitable in verse 2. A good reputation with outsiders in verse 7. He's describing being welcoming out of a love for strangers. So that's relational relational integrity. Lastly, he talks about spiritual maturity, and the main one here is really maturity in the Word of God. So in the case of a deacon, he describes it, verse 9, as keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And what he means is keeping hold of the revealed truth of the gospel, the deep truth of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel revealed as Christ, and living a faithful life in accordance with that revealed truth, and therefore with a clear conscience. That's what he's saying. Living a faithful life in accordance with the gospel, and hence having a conscience cleared by Christ. Then there's a further two two criteria which he mentions specifically for an overseer. So firstly, verse 6, an overseer or an elder cannot be a recent convert. The word there has got a, has a haughty cultural background. He can't be a seedling, easily swayed by the winds of pride and conceit. And secondly, verse 2, he must be able to teach. Now that teaching may be in a one-to-one setting around a dinner table. It may be around in a one-to-some setting in a house group. It may be around a one-to-many setting in a Sunday worship service. But as an overseer, he must be able to teach God's word and disciple others. Personal integrity, relational integrity, and spiritual maturity are the headings on the job description you are formulating. They're the criteria. Now that begs a question. Who on earth would have the gall to check the boxes on the application form and say, yes, I qualify? Who on earth would go to that application form and say, I'm above reproach, I'm temperate, I'm self-controlled, I'm respectable, I'm hospitable, I can teach, I manage my family well, I, I'm, I'm a man worthy of respect, I'm sincere, I don't indulge it, etc., etc. Who would have the audacity to do that? Who, humanly speaking, could do that? If you look at this, humanly speaking, then all posts for overseers and deacons should be vacant. All pulpits should be empty this morning, including this one. Humanly speaking, how is it possible that any fallen, sinful human being can meet these criteria? But thank God we're not talking humanly, are we? That's not what we're talking about. And that brings us to the last section, the equipping of servants. The equipping of servants. Look at verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. 
He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Much of Paul's letter that he sat down and wrote to Timothy about the church in Ephesus, as he puts it, has to do with teaching all God's people in the church how to conduct themselves, how to be. So knowing what kind of character and behavior we are all to pursue as we follow Christ in all we say, in all we do, as we seek to be holy as he is holy, that is at the heart of the letter. I'm writing to you, Timothy, he says, so you will know how people, all of the people of God's church, ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This letter is for all of us not just for those seeking to be elders or deacons. There's a danger in thinking that clergy are there to build up the church. There's a danger in thinking that clergy are there to build up the body of Christ, of thinking that they are the clergy in the pulpit building the church, we are the laity in the pew following them. That distinction between clergy and laity hasn't done us any favors at all because it's not biblical. The biblical pattern is that ministers and many others in the church are called and gifted, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Those prepared for works of service are the ones building up the body of Christ. The engine room of the church is the pew, it's not the pulpit. We are all called to the service of building Christ's church. So the question, how can we possibly be what Christ wants us all to be in our different roles, in our different works of service, how can we develop the integrity and the character we are called to have applies to all of us. And as Paul says at the end of this section, how that happens is a mystery. He says, I don't know how you do this. I really do not know. Beyond all question, he says in verse 16, the mystery of godliness is great. I do not know how this is possible. Now you would then expect him to point to God the Father who transforms us by God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. And he'd say, look at that. You'd expect him to say and to explain it's not about what we do, it's about what God does in us through the Holy Spirit. And you'd expect him then to encourage us in our weakness and our incompetence but he doesn't do that. The mystery of godliness is great, he says, and then he just just quotes a portion of a hymn and he looks at Christ. He doesn't even say look at Christ, he just looks at Christ and leaves you to get on with it. He looks at Christ in wonder and amazement. He quotes a line which declares that he, the pre-existent eternal son of God, appeared in a body, was declared to be God's son, in the presence of angelic witnesses. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, and was seen by angels. He quotes another line from the hymn, which declares that Christ was then preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. He's saying if you have doubts about being equipped for service in the church, in the church of the living God, in the pillar and foundation of the truth, if you have doubts about the holiness that God is calling you to, about whether this is really what you are being called to do, then maybe you're looking in the wrong place. 
If the eternal God can do what he has done, then maybe you should stop gazing at your navel. And you should realize that your shortcomings are a triviality to him. And you should realize that it's not up to you. Jerry Bridges, who was an American pastor and writer, who was an amazing guy, put it like this. He said, only when we're thoroughly convinced that the Christian life is entirely of grace are we able to serve God, to serve him out of a grateful and a loving heart. Paul says, look to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that you are a God of grace. Thank you that you, by your Spirit, equip us all for service in your precious church amongst your precious people. We pray that you would enable all of us to deacon faithfully and gladly, to serve with cheerful hearts regardless of our roles, as we all seek to do our part in works of service for the building up and expansion of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.